Hey, I'm Dave Coles, and you're listening to the All Blacks Podcast. Hello, and welcome to All Blacks Podcast. I'm Andy Burt, and I'm joined here today by New Zealand Rugby CEO Steve Chu and my co-host JP Tocker. Welcome to the show, Chewy. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. And uh, welcome, JP. Mate, can you tell us how MSP are getting on this season? Uh, yeah, not the best start, but um, we like to say that all the action happens in the second round, Andy, in the Jubilee Cup, and that's where the uh, the, the, the metal, the, the silverware is won. It's the, it's the bit, yeah, go. You're heading for the Harden Cup, aren't you? <laughs> we haven't been in the Harden Cup for a fair while, but we are sort of trending that way, but I'm sure we'll turn around against Avalon this weekend. All right, good luck for that, good luck for that. Hey Steve, while, we, while we're chatting club rugby grassroots, for the listeners out there, can you tell us your rugby background, where you started, where you first played rugby? Yeah, well, I, uh, my first uh, rugby experience was Strand Park out in the hut, and uh, as a young fella playing five-year-old uh, footy, long before it was uh, Ripper Rugby, so we were straight into the tackle. Um, Hut Old Boys Club was called in those days, now actually it's Hut Old Boys Marist. Played there for uh, a very long time, till I was in my 20s, and then eventually decided, because I was at university, that I'd, I'd actually change clubs and play for, for varsity here, so I'm an old green. Um, we're not heading for the Hardham Cup this year, just so we get it clear. Uh, we're, I think we're still top of the table. Um, and had four years playing senior footy uh, at that club and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But then I I wasn't very good, actually, anyway, but I, bu- I buggered my back and stopped. So where's your affiliations now? Huddle uh, Boys Marist or university? I keep an eye on both. Um, the, to be fair, I, I have so few weekends free that it's a long time since I watched a club game um, by choice, if you like, in that, in that regard. But, you know, pretty proud when... Old Boys University, who I still call the Old Greens, uh, got up and won their first trophy uh, season before last, I think. Um, and they hadn't won Jubilee Cup since Ron Jardin was playing and I went to school with Ron's kids. So that's a while ago. Yeah, hey Steve, um, in growing up, and obviously you're a local in Wellington and um, you were celebrated at the Hutt Valley Sports Awards last year. So you've done a lot for the community and a lot for New Zealand rugby. But mate, what was your transition and how did you get involved in sport and in sports administration? Yeah, well, I mean, I, to be fair, I was a bit of a slow starter as a student, so didn't fly through secondary school. And for the older people that are uh, listening to this, they'll remember that sixth form, which is now year 12, you could actually, if you were bad enough, have two years there. So I, I followed that route, so I never made the seventh form. Um, but did eventually go to university and uh, came out of that miraculously with a master's in recreation administration, which was kind of the forerunner to the e-sports management courses that are that are almost everywhere in uh, tertiary institutions around the country now. So that got me started in sport, and I've been lucky, really, that I've worked in, in sport since the day I graduated, um, effectively uh, all my life. So first job was at um, for an organisation that ran university tournaments, so I had to go to quite a large number of university winter, summer and ski tournaments, and again, for those that are a bit older, they, were, they, were a, they had a variety of seriousness to them, and then... When I came back from overseas, worked for the Hillary Commission, which is now Sport New Zealand, and then went down and had that amazing opportunity when rugby first went professional um, with the Crusaders and learnt an enormous lot. I've, I've been back in, in New Zealand rugby in Wellington since then. I guess a lot of people who go to university, they don't actually know what they want to do for a career. Did you know from the outset that you know, sports administration was, was where you were heading? No, and in actual fact, the first year out of school, um, I had a manual job working for a, a, a small contracting firm laying gas pipes. So... That, that taught me actually quite a lot about hard work, but also taught me that I didn't really want to be on the end of a shovel for the rest of my life either. So went off to university and had no idea, frankly, what uh, I was going to do. And that, that master's course, which, to be honest, I hadn't really 
considered an aspirational goal for me would be to be doing a master's course. But it, it came up as I was getting better at university. At that stage, I was playing for, for the university. I was captain of the, the senior side, and, and it, it sort of made sense to get into that um, that course. And that really changed my direction completely. Like most young boys who grew up idolising rugby, and I'm still a rugby geek, and I get on a plane, I watch games, I don't watch movies. Um, I always wanted to be as good as I could be and fancy playing for Wellington and then ultimately being an all-black now for a whole host of reasons, largely to do with skill, strength, talent and um, heart. I didn't uh, quite make the cut. So to get eventually a job in professional rugby was uh, was, was huge and once that came about, then you know, obviously being up here in, in, in a role in New Zealand rugby and ultimately the one I've got now would, was a dream. And just quickly, so what position did you play and what, what would have been your playing highlight, your career highlight as a player? Yeah, well, we never played in the Jubilee Cup, I have to admit. <laughs> I've played a lot of hard of cut rugby. <laughs> never saw the Swindale Shield go anywhere near us. Um, oh, look, I think for me, I was a prop. I played uh, Lucy prop, could could play both sides, which would be handy nowadays. Um, probably should have really been a number eight, but the selectors got that wrong. Um, in the modern day, I'd probably be a second five or a centre, I suspect. <laughs> but who knows? Um, oh, my, my, look, I, you know, I don't know that I've really got a playing highlight. It was a pretty average career. I, I played a little bit of minor rugby for Wellington, so when you got that chance, that was that was pretty special. You know, playing for the first team was was good out of Hartley High School. Quite a quite a big thing for for us growing up. But um, no, most of my highlights have been uh, watching other people play. Frankly. Mate, and, and sort of coming out of uh, the Hilly Commission and then your transition to the Crusaders, and when you arrived at the Crusaders, they were they sort of led that professional era of New Zealand rugby, and they had this uh, amazing culture, which I think you know we've seen sort of transition into the All Blacks, and a lot of the other franchises have, have pulled good parts of, of what they created. But what was it that seeded that culture in Christchurch and with the Crusaders that um, that we've sort of known to love, and which sort of was, I suppose attributed to so much of the success in the early super days? Yeah, look, I think there's two quite different answers to that question. I mean, the first is that Canterbury rugby uh, had a rich history and at the time the game went professional, were reasonably successful. I think they held the Ranfrey Shield at that stage um, and, you know, we're, we're always very competitive in, in whatever form the national championship took at that time. Um, but the reality for the Crusaders was that we came last in, in the first year. So the foundation year for the Crusaders was a telling one. And we were poor last. You know, I often joke we were lucky to be last. Frankly, I think we won one game and drew one, and and that was it was in part because at the time the game transitioned to professional rugby, there was an, there was a threat. You'll recall that there was an alternative, and the players were were, were really forced to make a choice: did they want to stay playing inside a nationally organised uh, competition, which is what Sanzar set up, or did they go down the what's called the rugby circus at the time? Now the Canterbury boys had got quite excited by the circus, and so by the time um, Jock in particular uh, got to the Canterbury boys with the contracting. He was a he was a, he didn't have quite as much money and he was a bit out of um, patience. So we ended up with a pretty I think a, a low paid roster. Yep. Other people can choose whether it was any good or not, but we ended up last, so that probably gives you a sense of it. So I think what it really did it, it it meant that the group that were around then had a chance to say, well, this is not good enough given the Crusaders are effectively a reflection of Canterbury, uh, and what would we need to do to get better and we made a lot of change um, at that time, uh, and there's no—I don't think there's any coincidence that you'll recognise all these names. But at that stage, Wayne Smith, Steve Hanson, Robbie Deans, and Peter Sloan all came involved in different roles. Steve ended up um, not actually coaching initially; he was involved with setting up our academy and our player development program, which I think set the foundation. 
Rob uh, managed the um, team in the, in, the, in the Super Rugby competition, and Wayne and, and Sloaney coached. And then 97, uh, 96, 96 we came last, 97 we came sixth, and then they won eight, 98, 99, 2000. So that three-peat, which I think will be very hard to, to ever emulate. Um, and those those guys and a lot of people associated with that team around that time have obviously gone on and now played pivotal roles as the game's developed, not just here in, in, uh, in New Zealand, but actually all over the world. So that playing personnel for the Crusaders effectively remained the same from 96, but it was the off-field foundation that really, really changed things on field? Oh, no, not quite. No, we went out and um, one of the things we were able to do because uh, Canterbury had been quite... Uh, visionary in terms of their approach to it was they had money they had money almost before the game was professional to recruit players not necessarily to pay them but just to make it happen that makes sense and so there was a pot of gold it's called Team Canterbury a guy called Warren Goddard had, had set that up and Warren's still involved today um, and that enabled us to go and recruit and we had some big gaps glaring gaps and if you think about prop for example I remember going and talking to Kevin Nepia Kevin was a really important acquisition for for Canterbury and I remember with some fondness because he was an Aucklander and you know, Canterbury not the most easy place for Aucklanders to settle. Uh, I remember him limping off with a strained calf, I can't even remember what game it was now and he got a standing ovation because he'd been there for a couple of years during that transition and he'd made a big difference. But there's a whole, there's a pile of them. But the foundation was there, you know, we had Todd Blackadder, uh, Andrew Mertens, Justin Marshall, they were critical players in that period of time. And in fact actually, you know, Mertz would laugh if he was, if he ever stopped long enough to listen to something like this, but the two years he didn't play because he was injured were the two years we had our worst performances in it. It does demonstrate how important it is to have a good 10 um, driving the bus in any team in professional sport. It's a, a hot topic of conversation, but um, I, I, you know, there are probably a couple of franchises in New Zealand that probably don't have a 10, perhaps, um, or a marquee 10 that are, are driving, as you say, the bus. Um, and that 9 and 10 combination is really key. Is there a a succession plan for some of these younger guys who are coming through and do you have any influence over where they can play or go if you think they need to see some more game time? Uh, well, we don't have any influence anymore. I mean, uh, in the old, in the previous um, processes, we used to run a bit of a draft, but that's effectively gone now. Um, I think probably guys like Fozzie and Steve would have an influence that they could talk to a young fella and say, look, I think you need a bit more time and you might... You might have a look at the Blues because there's a gap there, depending on what position was. Um, you know, I think we've been we've been incredibly um, well served, if you like, by a number of tens coming through the system. And you know, there is a there's a, there's a unique. It's kind of stopped a little bit of late, I think, but there was a unique period there where all the All Black, all the Canterbury Crusader and All Black number tens came out of Boys High. And there was a almost a freakish run of them, you know, with Carter at the top of that list, but. Um, yeah, look, I think at the moment um, they're pretty highly sought after, aren't they? I mean, even you look at the Australian um, super teams, there are a number of non-Australians playing in that TNG jersey because they're just trying to find someone that's better than the local talent. It's a very unique position. Not as important as loose head prop, but not far away. No, I agree. I agree. <coughs> hey, um, in sort of just pushing or well, rolling back into your, your CEO, CEO role, but so you've gone through a, a couple of transitions. Obviously, that we, we've moved to professional footy, right? So... Um, that, that was a big change for New Zealand, and um, and it's also been a change of mindset for for the how they play the game, but also um, we've we've really introduced and grown women's rugby in New Zealand, and it's become like a focal point for New Zealand rugby. But on the seven stage, we're also fifteens, and um, numbers are numbers are obviously going through the roof at the moment. 
How has that been um, challenging and, and how are you trying to encourage women to play the game when it's been um, typically a, a male-dominated sport, especially in, in our New Zealand culture? Yeah, well, the first thing I think is to acknowledge what, what the opportunity is. There's no, there's no doubt that um, the growth in the game in the last two or three years has been phenomenal and probably surpassed our expectations. And so there's the opportunity. Um, women are important to, to everything we do anyway because they're mothers, um, they're decision makers, and they need to be they need to be as involved in our game as we can possibly make it. And that's that's always challenged rugby and, and some of the more traditional institutions around the place. So we've got to get better at that, and I think we are. Um, but I, there's no question uh, in my mind the opportunity for a young woman to go to the Olympics has made a huge difference for us, right? So there aren't many team sports that New Zealand are good enough to contemplate being on the Olympic stage on a, on a frequent basis. You know, occasionally, with, with respect, we might get a basketball team through, or, but you know, hockey really is the only other sport that makes a regular appearance at the Olympics. And you know, not only can we have a reasonable amount of confidence of qualifying, but we've got a chance of being on the podium, and that's actually quite appealing for, for a young athlete, right? So that's, that's the opportunity for us. I think, ironically, um, you know, as the game has grown, and I think we've been quite an important part of that, and we should never overlook the, the contribution that you know, Farah Palmer and others have made through the Black Ferns. You know, four Rugby World Cup victories, you know, Farah and I think Anna Richards have played in, or Anna certainly played in all four, I'm not sure about Farah, maybe three out of four, but possibly four. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that, you know, imagine someone like Kieran Reid going to four World Cups and winning them. That would be just overlooked, isn't it? That sort of thing is, is, is much more significant than we probably give it credit for. So, but it's got harder. As, as we've grown the game and publicised it around the world, for, for women it's got more difficult. And, you know, we saw the rise of the Australian women's team and I think very worthy gold medalists last year in Rio. They were the best team at the tournament. I'm not sure they were the best team at the, in the final, but they've been the best team all year and therefore a gold medal was what they deserved um, so it's made it much tougher for us and it's the same with the Black Ferns, you know, didn't win the last World Cup eagerly awaiting the opportunity to go back to uh, Ireland later this year and fix it And off the field, Farrah Palmer, could you just speak to her, her role now with, with New Zealand Rugby? Well Farrah's been involved for obviously a very long time because she's a pioneering player um, and a captain and a leader and a whole, uh, a whole lot of regards but She's been on our um, New Zealand Maori board for a long time, so she's been making a contribution. But now elevated to our board, she's just going to be a very good director. She already is. Um, you know, she comes with a, a, a reasonably fresh player's insight. Uh, she's a relatively um, young uh, and current mother. Uh, she's an academic that works uh, studying our business and sports management, management and leadership. Uh, she obviously brings uh, a, a dimension from a. She grew up in a small town, in New Zealand. She now works in a university. She's travelled the world, um, and she's very bright and she's inquiring. And she's going to be, I think, an outstanding director who will be very demanding of us, which is the way it should be. In, in your role as CEO of the Rugby Union, can you um, sort of sum up what a, what a, a typical day would look like for your role? I, I know a lot of people probably think you just deal with media requests for Sonny Bill Williams and things like that, but that's obviously not the case. Um, yeah, if, if you could just give us a bit of a run-through about what, who you have to deal with uh, and what your responsibilities are of CEO of the New Zealand Rugby Union. Uh, well, yeah, clearly I have to deal with annoying buggers like you um, <laughs> from time to time. No, look, I think, uh, actually I just spoke to a student um, who's doing a, doing a paper at a course of Massey uh, and largely asked me the same question, what, what do you do on a daily basis? I mean, the, rea the reality is if you're the chief executive of a, a reasonably large organisation, which we are now, you don't do a lot of the stuff yourself. You know, my role is to keep a, a, a very 
clear watch on our performance against our objectives in a given year, make sure we're managing all of our risks, make sure we're managing all of our financial um, requirements, both in the cost and the revenue side of it, um, work closely with the chairman and the, and the board and make sure that we are delivering on our on our, we've got a you know we, we we spend a lot of time on strategy so we've got a 2020 plan out of that comes our annual um, work plan for the year and the budget and make sure that everything we're doing actually drives us towards the outcomes that are that are covered but the world changes almost instantly so we, it's a very dynamic um, place we live now so th those things don't st stick uh, as solid as they used to and you've also got to be, so you've got to be keep reviewing and and having a look at what the, the opportunities now might be, all the threats and risks. So, look, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, if I'm in Wellington, I have a lot of meetings, spend a lot of time on the phone. Like it's all nowadays, we spend a lot of time on the electronic communication, so there's emails uh, to deal with. Um, I like this, to walk the floor a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm very much of the view that if you're leading an organisation, you've got to know what your, the pe people in your team are doing. Um, I'm, I like to think I'm a people person anyway, and I've always say that, uh, any organisation that gets the people part wrong is not going to be successful. Hey Tangata, hey Tangata, hey Tangata. It is almost always, it is always, always about the people. Um, but I travel a lot. I got a lot of meetings. Um, I'm off to Japan on the weekend. I'll be there for 10 days on a variety of things around World Rugby and Sanzo and a bit of stuff on behalf of the country. So I've got a very, very job. And then ultimately, every um, so often I get to sit on halfway in a pretty exciting moment in, in New Zealand sporting history. And that's that still gets me incredibly excited. And you mentioned um, growing organisation. I've been here a short time and I've noticed that grow massively in that short space of time. And I guess the organisation's undergone evolution from a sports administration now to a pretty big global brand. Can you speak to that evolution and potentially look at the future for New Zealand rugby as well? Well, yeah, I mean, if you go back to the, the pre-professional days, there, there probably would have been four or five people working in the office. They would have been not much more than administrators. Um, servicing a council of delegates who made all the decisions. Um, now that there was a revolution really in that period of time, um, but since then we've grown. So, you know, the, the 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 big growth for us is around some of the regulatory requirements. So health and safety has become a really important issue, and um, we're obviously taking a, a very keen interest in the well-being of our people and particularly our players. So the whole stuff around integrity, education, mental health. Um, Corruption, gambling, supplements, drug taking, all that stuff's become a big growth area. Um, the work we're doing in, in, the, in, in our ability to capture content, I presume you probably call this content, some people will, some people won't, uh, and how you get that to your fans and how that uh, gets them more involved in it so they help us pay the bills. Um, the whole commercial side of the business has gone from a very modest stage to, to where we are now. We've, you know, we have two very large international partners in AIG and, and Adidas, they, they, they do require time out of the country building those relationships, maintaining them and, and seeing the people we deal with. So yeah, it's just, it's very hard to compare, isn't it, what it was like even maybe five years ago. We've, we've been doing a bit of work on that recently because we're just looking at our cost base and where that's going and um, we've gone from you know 90 odd people to 140 pretty fast. And uh, in actual fact, one of the challenges for us is that we are, as organisations grow, they, they change the whole sort of aspect of how an organisation can operate changes. You know, for, you might not be on the same floor all of a sudden and that, that has an, an impact on the environment and the way people interact. So lots going on and, um, and we're a national organisation and, and uh, I spend a fair amount of time on the plane to Auckland. Hey. Another one of the challenges which um, it doesn't exactly fall into your remit but um, we're seeing a little bit of a decline and drop off in club player numbers. 
but then we're also seeing this um, first 15 rugby sort of coming into the limelight a little bit. It's it's televised, you know, people are picking players straight out of first 15 now to go and play super rugby. Does, is there a strategy to try and, look? I, I suppose, hold club rugby where it's at? Um, and it's going to be difficult to grow it, but especially trying to retain those sorts of players in the lower grades as well as keep the quality at the top of the senior grades? Yeah, well, it is in my agreement because one of the, one of the I think the neat things about about rugby in this country and working in, in any organisation here is we have what is quite I think it is quite unique in sport that we look after the community game right up to the to the pinnacle where the All Blacks sit, and so that doesn't happen in a lot of sport. You know, if you think about a professional sport in America, where the professional game is very isolated from the reality of the world, um, and the colleges and the and the junior uh, competitions look after the community game, so. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot in your question, to be fair. Um, yes, first thing rugby is enjoying a, a profile it's probably never uh, experienced before. Yes, our and our competitors' talent ID systems have got better, so we are identifying talent earlier, and that comes with its own opportunities and challenges because kids are uh, getting told very early in their lives that they're going to be a really good player and they're going to get all the things that come with it, and that. Some works for some, doesn't work for others. But I think more importantly, with, for everyone you tell is going to be good, you're tell, probably telling 14 who aren't. You know, when I think about my own sort of days in rugby, I, I was happy to play in the second 15. I would have preferred to have been in the first 15, but I wasn't good enough, so I played and I was happy. I went and played in the second 15. Um, nowadays, our kids are a little bit more impatient, and if they're getting an early message that they're actually not in the best group, they go and do other stuff because there's a whole lot more choice. So that for us is, I think, and not just for rugby, that's a challenge for all of us. This new generation is... I mean, even it's so instant, isn't it? I mean, as I say, talking to the student um, this morning, you know, she, she's grown up in a very different world than than even my daughter did uh, four or five years ago. Just to contrast that, talking community grassroots, now looking at the global rugby calendar, you played quite an instrumental role in, in making that happen. I think 2020 it kicks in. Um, not necessarily talking about the process, but just talking about the outcome. What, what, what will that change mean, the global rugby calendar mean? What will that mean for the face of rugby? Yeah, well, I've tried to rename it because the global would suggest that we've got a calendar that's global. <laughs> and and the reality is that rugby's played in, in winter in two hemispheres where winter's different. So we've actually what we've got now is an international calendar. Um, we try to convince the North that they should play their footy in their summer because in most countries that would have been OK and probably quite sensible. But but the reality is that we needed... There are a number of things in this too, but the, the, the most important thing is we needed to anchor the primacy of international rugby. And if you haven't got a calendar agreed, so you know who you're playing, and not too not too far away from now, then that that's really at risk. And we're seeing the rise of the economies around the club game, particularly in France and England, and the threat that that poses because they're owned by and funded by people who don't actually care about international rugby. You know, the, most of the French club owners are not that concerned about the French team, and so they they don't care if they've got no number tens playing who are French eligible. That's not they just want to win the competition. So we needed to make sure we got a calendar in place and there was a whole lot of debate around that about who would play when and when the calendar works and who was getting what money. So it was a complicated um, complicated process, uh, a lot of stakeholders involved and, and thousands of hours of phone calls and meetings. But we got there. You know, We now have, we know who we're playing um, between 2020 and 2030 in July, so we moved the window, which is good for us. I mean, Super Rugby can go from start to finish before um, international footy starts. Um, we know where we're playing in November. We've locked the lines into that calendar. Uh, we've done, I think, a better, much better job for the developing countries. They'll play more regularly against uh, teams from both the north and the south, that some people call Tier 1. And so there's a lot of really good stuff come out of that agreement. Um, it's not perfect for anybody, which is 
pretty much what you'd expect when you've got a variety of people who want something different. There's got to be compromise. So, yeah, no, it's very pleasing. And the uh, Pacific Nations set to benefit from this as well? Yeah, all uh, I mean, they're currently called Tier 2, but I, I like to think more of the developing nations. So the issue we have with particularly um, Samoa, Tonga and Fiji is that they've got to a certain level, but the reality is they're not big economies. They're not big populations. They're, their athletes are fine um, sports people, and they are therefore easily taken other places. And not just, as some critics will have you think, from the Northern Hemisphere, not just to, um, to New Zealand and Australia. There's a very significant number of particularly Fijians playing in France. Um, and so you know, the opportunity for them to play more games was really important, but also Georgia, USA, Canada, Japan, um, there are other countries coming through. You know, there's, a, there's quite an intense battle going on for the European spots in the World Cup in Japan. Um, Germany's a bit of a late comer. So, you know, it's, it was pretty exciting, isn't it? And the game needs to grow. The traditional markets, you know, we've got, a, a, we've got an unhealthy reliance on the French and UK market for um, particularly broadcast income for World Cups, and we need to go into new countries. And so, actually, the Olympics, the, the highest viewing nation for the sevens from, from Rio is Germany. All exciting, you know, very exciting. Hey, look, and um, it's no news that the Lions are coming, and um, they come to New Zealand every, was it six years? Twelve years, sorry. And uh, look, hey, it's, a, it's a great time because we get to play, you know, the, the best from the UK, but look, what are some of the benefits, uh, and some of the obviously quite obvious, but that the Lions come to New Zealand, and how does that benefit not just, obviously, the public, but also the New Zealand Rugby Union, and how does that trickle down into things like club rugby and things? <coughs> Yeah, you ask big questions. Um, no, 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 don't be sorry. Well, I mean, the thing about the Lions, it's quite unique, right? It's, it doesn't happen in, I don't think it happens in any other sport, and it's the only thing that happens in rugby that's like this. You know, we don't have, a, we don't have an Australasian Lions team or a, you know, an African Lions team. So uh, the, the, once, the once in a 12-year sort of scarcity of it is, is really, really important. And even if you follow it when it goes to Australia and South Africa, it's still only once every four years. Um, you know, I was privileged enough to be here in 05, so this is the second time that I've experienced it, and I think that puts me in a pretty lucky group. But it's, it's a, so that's it's unique. I mean, it's been helpful for us in player retention because it's a mid-cycle in a World Cup, so if the guys are thinking about are they going to stay or go, then a Lions is you know, it's a unique career opportunity. So a number of players have stayed for the Lions, and, and then it's been easy to keep them for, for the next World Cup. Um, just pose a side question is what, what's, the, what's the big anchor between 2019 and 23, and that's a bit more challenging. Um, but I think more broadly speaking in terms of the country, you know, obviously it brings an influx of visitors, um, probably more important to the economy in 2005 than it is this time if we're being honest because the country's quite full, you know, we've, got a, we've had an explosion in tourism, but it is at the time when we're not busy, as busy as we can be, and so that's great, and they're great tourists, they come and they spend money and they're well behaved, um, they get connected to the communities they visit, and they'll be a lot of fun, um, and so that's, that's huge, and it, for New Zealanders, it's the second biggest event we get to host, in, in my view. It depends on your measure, but 05 Lions, 2011 World Cup and 2017 um, Lions will be three of the biggest events we host in, in this country for two or three generations. So really, really exciting, and it is going to be a very challenging series for the All Blacks. And putting your fan hat on, what do you think of the squad that uh, Gats has selected? Um, well, look, to be brutally honest, I'm, I'm, not, I'm no expert, which is why I don't get to select our sides. Um, I think he's picked a pretty balanced side, quite, as I understand it, pretty predictable for, for him. He's got a, he obviously got a, a great amount of trust in a number of key players, particularly out of Wales. 
but he's he's seen what Ireland's done, and, and England are obviously uh, had a great couple of years. So, they, you know, if, this series will come down probably to attrition. I think uh, I think you're going to have two very well matched sides. They'll play probably a slightly different game than each other, um, but I suspect both will adapt accordingly. Um, but as we saw last time, you know, a lot of people uh, recall the Driscoll injury as as pivotal for that tour, but. Actually, in my view, losing Lawrence Delalio in the first game against Bayer Pliny was actually more important because he was there. He really was their talisman. He might not have been their captain, but Lawrence brought an edge to a team he played for, a real focus. He wasn't intimidated by anybody, and he was a and he was good enough to wear that jersey in every test he played. And so, when he went home early, I thought that was a big blow. And I think probably if you know he probably had a had a reasonable handle on um, how the players could influence the leadership of that particular team at the time. Yeah, he's a bit of a tough nut. He's like that spiritual character of the side of him. He's like the equivalent to losing a, a, well, not quite a McCaw, but probably not far from it. And he looked like a Roman soldier as well. <laughs> yeah, he did. He looked, he's a rather, yeah, yeah, he's an absolute beast of a guy. Hey, when, how does the New Zealand rugby union deal with a, a massive tour like this? Do you have to ramp up in staff and bring extra people on to, to help with the logistics and planning side of things? Uh, well, I hope we had to because we have. Um, yeah, we've got a project team led by um, Cam. Uh, good, who's actually he's run the two last World Cup programs because World Cups are also more than just the All Blacks going. I mean, I think last at the last World Cup we were very pleased with the impact we made off the field, both commercially and at the community level, with what we did in England. Um, and Cam's led that broader project. Uh, so he and Nigel, who he reports to, um, Nigel Cass, he was here in '05 and led that Lions tour. I mean, as an aside, we would not have hosted Rugby World Cup 2011 if it hadn't coincidentally been hosting the Lions in '05 because. It gave us an opportunity to showcase New Zealand. It gave us an opportunity to have all the people who voted for the 2011 host to be to be here during the Lions tour. The weather played its part. We had Wellington days like this. The week they were all here it was just amazing. Um, and we were able to show that the country, despite its limitations around infrastructure, could host a big event. And I think that made a big difference. So, yep, no, to answer your question, we've got a project team. We've, we've ramped up. I think there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of... Folk that have been here, some for weeks, some for months. Um, they're about to have all their planning tested and come to fruition, and then, and you know, unfortunately, a, a number of them will leave us because they're here for a specific project. But um, there's also a few in that group too who are kind of the the um, we call them the event nomads. They they travel the world doing events, so they're experts, and that's why you bring them in. In chatting, um, player retention. You mentioned it earlier on. Look at the 1990s, it was Rugby League was the threat, now it's potentially Japan, France. Um, do, do you see any other future threat in the future, something, you know, some different market that will emerge, or do you think that Europe is the real real target at the moment? Well, right now, France is the problem for us because the French um, rugby um, economy makes no sense. So you've got these incredibly wealthy people, some of them cashed up billionaires, who, who want their club to win um, the top 14 competition. And to a lesser extent in, in England, although I think there's a little bit more understanding of the broader picture of the game amongst the English group. But the French are frankly out of control and, and driving the, the price of our talent, coaches and players and other personnel past any point of economic sense. So we don't play that game. We don't have a battle on the dollars. We try and create an environment that the players want to be in, both at super and all-back level, and that's held us in reasonable uh, stead. And, and we've obviously made, and held, made the decision and then held the position that if you want to play for the All Blacks, you've got to be here. Um, and yeah, think about it, at a time when we've been under the most pressure to retain talent, we've gone from having no centurion All Blacks to now, I think, seven or eight. Yeah. And, you know, 
all things being equal this year, there'll be a couple more. So uh, I think that's that's the current situation. I Ironically, if we grow the game into new markets, then New Zealand talent will will be sought after, won't it? Because that's just the reality. If we say, OK, there's going to be a professional competition on the west coast of the USA and Canada in the next five years, then they will want our coaches, they will want our tens, they will want our lucid props. That's that's just going to be the actually tight heads probably if I was being honest. Um, that's that's just the reality of the of the of the market. Um, you know we live in an open world and, and our talent is as um, desirable and um, and gettable in rugby as it is in any other profession. Hey, just uh, I saw something the other day and I, I totally agreed with it. I love our rivalry against Australia, but I'm getting bored of thrashing them at Super Rugby level and at international level. Do you think we could help them out and allow them to come play on our NPC so their players can get a bit more experience? Um, yeah, I think you know you redefine your, your your version of boredom. You never get bored beating Australia, my friend. Um, look, I don't, there's no there's no doubt that we need uh, we need rugby in the Southern Hemisphere to be strong. And you know we've got to take a little bit of a deep breath. It was it was only September October 2015 where we had four Southern Hemisphere teams play in that final weekend of um, before the final. In fact, they played two weekends in a row because they played the third and fourth playoff, obviously. So we've gone from that situation to a point now where both Australia and South Africa have got some challenges. And, yes, you know, we need we need a more competitive um, situation, particularly, I think, in investing Super Rugby where at the moment where we've got 15, 15 zip for the season, um, Australia and New Zealand teams, that's not helpful, really. Uh, as much as we might enjoy it, enjoy the moment for 80 minutes when you sit back and look at the, the overall scheme of things, that's not ideal. Uh, bringing them into Monty 10 Cup's a much bigger call, um, frankly. I mean, you know the Australians this year had an idea that we should ditch South Africa and just play them. I'm not quite sure how that was going to work personally. I mean, it's certainly not the way we do business. But, um, yeah, there's a few things you'd need to weigh up, right? You, you know, we've got 14 teams here. If you're going to do that um, with Australia, do you have less New Zealand teams? These are, that is a big political question. I still remember the days when we tried to take 14 down to 10 and I was a very unpopular person in a number of places in New Zealand, even though it wasn't me personally doing it. Um, and, and then there's the economics of it, uh, because while we wouldn't be flying people around the world to play in a competition, we would still be crossing the Tasman. And that's part of New Zealand sports challenge, isn't it, is that we are... It's one of our, it's one of our advantages, but it's also one of our big disadvantages in that to get international competition, you've got to fly at least three hours. And if you're a sport that doesn't see Australia as a benchmark, and there are some, and I was at a forum yesterday with all of my colleagues from New Zealand Sport and at the Olympic um, AGM, you know, there are some that have got to go to Europe to get any sort of contest, whereas at least we know that if we can cross the ditch, that's the first place you've got to test yourself. Um, and sports that can't do that spend a lot more time on the aeroplanes and, and have to spend a lot more money. And not a lot of sports can do what we do in that regard. And I think that'll be the issue around the Mighty 10 Cup. Yeah, no, look, I, th I think that's probably a good answer. It would be romantic to see them come and play in the NPC, but obviously some logistical issues. But... Um, like we, we are, I'd, love, I'd love to see that. the Kiwis playing in the Big Bash, you know? Yeah, we can maybe, maybe, maybe we play in the Big Bash, they can play in the NPC. Could you make that happen, New Zealand, a New Zealand team in the Big Bash? Could you give um, his CEO, is it Snedden or, or Chris White, a call? David, David White? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, most, of our, most of our boys are really good at currently playing in India, aren't they? And, and making a lot more money than we are. Um, I, look, I think the, the whole trans-Tasman thing is, is tricky for, for all of our sports, right? You've seen... You know, we've got we've had one team in their basketball league for a very long time, and could we, you know, there are would be Australians, and if you take the approach the governments are currently taking in Australia, why have we got a New Zealand team in the, in the A League? Why have we got a New Zealand team in the NRL? And why have we got a New Zealand team in the basketball competition? Are they really helping? 
grows sport in Australia? Are they, do they add anything to the economics? And they, they probably don't, if we're being uh, brutally honest. And the netball's made a call. Said, you know, we love you to death, but goodbye. And so, you know, there's always a little bit, I personally, and then be careful how I say this, always say you treat your relationship with Australia with real caution because uh, ultimately they're charged with doing what's best for Australia. It doesn't always match what we require. So we've had, and we've had plenty of examples of that. But look, we, we've got a great relationship with the Australian Rugby Union. Um, we, we share a lot of um, ideas and you know, we spend a lot of time together. Um, when we want them to be doing well, we want them, you know, I, I thought that last week in London was fantastic. To have the four Southern Hemisphere sides take over Twickenham two weekends in a row couldn't have been better. But I doubt it'll be repeated in Japan the way things are tracking. Hey, look, we've uh, we've chewed up a, a fair amount of your time. I know you're a busy a busy fella. So, uh, look, behalf of me and Andy, and um, and obviously all the all the audience out there, we really appreciate your time coming on the All Blacks podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure the Lions tour will go well. And enjoy enjoy Japan. Enjoy some sake, and maybe a couple of um, what do they drink over there? Asahi's. What's your what's your go to in Japan? <laughs> Well, the actually, well, I think a, well, a very well kept secret is the little the little local restaurants and bars all have beer on kegs and you know, on tap, and so you can drink a very crisp there's a variety of them, frankly. Um, but you know, we're obviously uh, we're a Karen brand, so I'll, I'll be sticking out. I'll be I'll be, I'll be finding some Karen, but uh, no, it's a great opportunity, isn't it? And um, with uh, the World Cup and the Olympics on the horizon, you'll see a lot more of New Zealand business, a lot more of New Zealand. Um, uh, trade and enterprise interest going up, and uh, and we'll be we'll be helping as much as we possibly can because the All Blacks are a great vehicle for for that, and not just the All Blacks, All Blacks Sevens, Blackfern Sevens um, as well. And one final note to end on: you've watched a lot of rugby around the world. Best atmosphere? Um, I look, I, I yeah, Eden Park around the World Cup was pretty special, wasn't it? No, no question about that. I think Forsyth Bar when it's full uh, is is pretty special. Waikato is the same. I think the best rugby ground, if you're being brutally honest, they're all they're all great, right? And I've been to a lot. So Durban's a fantastic place to go. Actually, as an art, and if you go out the back to their car park where they all have their brides and picnics and stuff, that's that's pretty special. But Twickenham, when it's full, is probably the best rugby ground in the world. If you're being really honest, um, you know, it's 84,000 people. It's a rugby purpose-built, only used for rugby stadium. Huge amount of history out the back where we we're very privileged to go to, but. Um, you know, one thing I, I would say, one of the, well, there was no atmosphere because no one was watching, but one of the great days to be a New Zealander supporting our teams was the day that the men and women both won World Cup Sevens trophies in Moscow. So within the space of an hour, I saw two New Zealand teams lift the trophy and then haka the stand, and that was, that was pretty special. Um, and the go-to in Moscow is a bit more difficult than the cold beer. <laughs>